Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. My soul has found a resting place on him alone. This is the theme for us as we turn to God's word this morning, and we're turning to the gospel of Mark. Morning, we arrive at the end of chapter 6, and I invite you to open your Bibles there. If you were here with us last week, you know that last week we looked at perhaps Jesus' most famous miracle, his feeding of the 5,000. And there in that miracle, we saw Jesus' heart of compassion for his people who were like sheep without a shepherd. We, we saw Jesus give his time and his attention to teach them and feed them spiritually. We saw him break bread and feed them physically. And in providing bread in this desolate place where there was no food, we saw him demonstrate that he is the prophet who was to come and the good shepherd who meets their needs. We saw all of this last week, but as we move on this morning in verse 45, the text picks up right where we left off last week as Jesus is still standing in front of these now well-fed crowds. So we want to pick up the action here, so let's read Mark 6, verses 45 to 56. This is God's word. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea while he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened." When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well." Father, we thank you for your word. Father, would you send your spirit and apply your word. Speak to us through your word this morning that we might know Christ better and come to him. We pray it for his sake. Amen. You know, over the last 150 years, the story of Jesus walking on the water has drawn quite a bit of academic and historical interest. And you can certainly understand that interest as you read this story and understand how we could think, in history, did a man actually walk on the water? The 20th century saw many efforts to offer what they saw as a more reasonable explanation than a man actually walking on the water. 
Albert Schweitzer, in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, pitched the idea that Jesus was actually walking close to the shore on barely submerged rocks, and that in the, you know, just pre-dawn light, the disciples thought he was walking on the water. Sherman, Sherman Johnson proposed that Jesus actually had found a sandbar that the disciples didn't know anything about, and he walked out to them on the sandbar. Rudolf Boltmann, he suggested that, well, actually, this story was never meant to be historical. It wasn't meant to be an account of something that actually happened. It was an allegory or a fable written to express Jesus' significance and royalty. And then just a few years ago, in 2006, a professor at Florida State University, a professor of oceanography, concluded an extensive scientific analysis and determined that it was possible that a rare atmospheric event could have produced localized patches of ice on the Sea of Galilee, and that just perhaps Jesus came floating out to his disciples on ice. Now, if we wanted to take the time, we could talk about each one of these proposals, and I could argue how each one of them is less logical, less scientifically likely, and less historically valid than what Matthew, Mark, and John all declare, that in history, as an actual event, the divine man, Son of God, Jesus, walked across the water to join his disciples in their boat on the Sea of Galilee. And believing that to be true, this passage describes yet another revelation of who Jesus is and another demonstration that his people find rest and help in him. And that's really the point of our passage, to declare who Jesus is and to invite us to find rest and help in him. So we'll, we'll look at each of these points in turn. But let's start by looking at what this passage tells us about who Jesus is. Now, we're going to discover who Jesus is in this passage. We have to know that first, this passage tells us who Jesus is not. Even in the English, you can sense the urgency of verse 45. Dinner was over. Twelve basketfuls of bread and fish have been picked up. And Jesus immediately made his disciples get in the boat while he dismissed the crowds. There is, especially in the Greek here, an unusual urgency or compulsion to Jesus' actions here. It's as if the disciples were loving this show and wanted to hang around, and Jesus said, no, get in the boat and leave now. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, I think John 6 in the parallel account makes it clear As soon as the people had seen this miracle, John tells us they were ready to come by force and make Jesus king. In other words, seeing this miracle, the crowds assumed that Jesus was the Messiah, but the Messiah they were looking for. A man who would lead an uprising, who would free them from Roman rule and restore their land to freedom and glory. And they are ready for the revolution to begin now. Perhaps the disciples were even on board with this plan. We know from the text here that they were still not exactly clear on who Jesus was or what he had come to do. Mark tells us in verse 52 that they did not understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. We know from chapter 1 of Mark that the disciples wanted Jesus to capitalize on his momentum with the crowds. 
And so Jesus acts to quickly dissipate this idea. He sends the disciples away, dismisses the crowds, and withdraws by himself to pray. So Jesus is not the disciple, the, or the, uh, the Messiah the, that the people thought he was, this leader who would rise up against Rome. That's not who he was. Well, who was Jesus? Well, we get a little clue from that just by the fact that Jesus withdrew to pray, I think. It's particularly significant in Mark because there are three occasions that Mark tells us that Jesus withdrew from the disciples and the people to pray. And each one comes at a crucial juncture in his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, just after his baptism and the calling of his disciples, Jesus performed a series of miracles and healings. And we read that there was a burst of interest and zeal about Jesus. And the disciples wanted Jesus to capitalize on the momentum and go back and keep healing the crowds. But instead, Jesus withdrew and prayed and moved on to the next towns. Here, the people are ready to make Jesus king. But instead, Jesus dismisses the crowds and prays. In the Garden of Gethsemane is the third time Mark tells us Jesus withdrew to pray there. His death was imminent when Jesus withdrew. And I think the commonality of each of these situations is that each time, Jesus' commitment to his Father's will is tested. Will he ride popular enthusiasm to glory and success? Or will he go to the cross as his father had called him to do, that his father might exalt him to the right hand of his throne as king and head of the church. And each time Jesus withdraws to be in communion with his father, reaffirming in fellowship with his father who he is and what he has come to do. So Jesus, in withdrawing to pray, reemphasizes who he is as the son of God, But having communed with his father in prayer, Jesus is ready to reveal himself more fully to his disciples. The text very clearly tells us that though they were out on the sea, he was on land. And though they were separate, Jesus was watching over them. Verse 48 tells us that he could see them making difficult headway out on the lake. We don't know here whether he could physically see him or this is his divine knowledge that he is able to see him. But once again, he could see that his disciples were in trouble. Now this time, there does not seem to be an immediate danger of dying for the disciples. Instead, the disciples are weary. They're exhausted, perhaps exasperated. The wind is against them, and they're making slow progress as they strain to cross the sea. John notes that they had made it about three or four miles by the fourth watch of the night. Now, if you do your, do your math and remember your Roman history, the fourth watch of the night was the last watch before dawn, so it would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And assuming, uh, as the text tells us, that Jesus had dismissed the disciples in the evening, but probably before dark, we're talking somewhere between seven and ten hours of rowing that the disciples have been up to, and they are still out in open water. But it is here in the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now that in and of itself is a revelation of who Jesus is. Because see, in the Old Testament, there certainly had been many prophets who had done many different miracles. There had even been a couple of prophets who had divided the sea. But in the Old Testament, there is only one 
person who walks on the sea, and it is God himself. Think of Job, Job chapter 9. Job is rehearsing how God is categorically greater than mankind, unique in his majesty. And Job goes through a number of signs of God's majesty. He says he alone removes mountains. He alone shakes the earth, stretches out the sky. And then in verse 8, he says he alone tramples or treads on the waves of the sea. Treading on the waves of the sea is territory of God's, not of a man or a prophet. And so Jesus comes to his disciples in his divinity, treading on the water. But then the text tells us that as he came to them, he meant to pass by them. Now that is an unusual comment. It can sound confusing. It sounds like Jesus doesn't plan to interact with the disciples at all. You know, you you picture it here. Here they are straining at the oars, fighting a contrary wind, unable to get to shore, And we think Jesus intends to pass by them? Is he intending just to leave them out there? But that can't be right. Jesus' intent cannot be just to walk by them and leave them there because all three Gospels emphasize that when Jesus came walking on the water, he came to the disciples. Matthew says he came out to the disciples. Mark says uh, here that he came to them in verse 48. John says he drew near to them. So his intent seems to be to come to the disciples, not to bypass them and leave them alone. So why this comment, according to Mark, that he was going to pass by them, that he wanted or wished to pass by them? Well, I think the answer to this is that to pass by the disciples was not to ignore them, but to show himself to them. Jesus' desire was to come to them and make himself seen. And I think this takes on all the more significance when we remember that whenever God passes by someone, he does so in order to reveal himself to them and who he is. You might think back to Exodus chapter 33. You remember this event right after the golden calf catastrophe When Moses is interceding before the Lord and he asks the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. And what does God respond in verse 21? He says, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock while my glory passes by you or passes before you. Then in chapter 34, verse 6, we read, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed his name and his character. Or maybe you think about 1 Kings, 1 Kings 19. The prophet Elijah is overwhelmed to the point of despair from fleeing Jezebel. He is weary and exhausted and collapses, and yet the Lord meets him and feeds him bread. And then he tells him to stand on a mountain, and we read in 1 Kings 19.11, And behold, the Lord passed by him, and the power and the presence of the Lord were revealed to him. In each of these passages, the Lord passes by his people to show himself to them, to declare his glory to them, and to draw him to himself for strength for their calling. And I believe this is the same purpose of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' desire to pass by the disciples was not an attempt to avoid them. It was to show himself and his glory to them, to reveal who he is to them as he comes to them on the sea. And Jesus accomplishes his purpose. 
As Jesus shows himself to the disciples walking on the sea, they immediately recognize that this is no mere man. Maybe it was just because they think no man can walk on the sea. Maybe there was something else about Jesus' appearance and glory here that indicated the same. We, we don't know, but clearly the disciples realized this couldn't be a man and unfortunately concluded as a result it must be a ghost. Now, I think it's important. Mark, again, makes a very important comment here. He says in uh, verse 49... Um, that he came to them, or sorry, in verse 50, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him. That's an important comment because it's not like one person saw something out of the corner of their eye and thought maybe it was a ghost, but it couldn't be confirmed. No, clearly, Jesus intends to be seen and all the disciples saw him, but they thought it was a ghost. Now, at this point, this is almost becoming comedic. Jesus has healed people with a touch. He's raised a dead girl to life. He's cast out demons with a word. He's calmed a storm with a word. He's fed thousands with a few loaves of bread. And so we begin to think disciples. I mean, he's given you clue after clue after clue to who he is. How do you keep missing who Jesus is? When I think of this, I I immediately thought of the children's books about Amelia Bedelia. Maybe you read Amelia Bedelia, and you know that if you have, that Amelia Bedelia, no matter how many instructions she is given, always interprets them in the least likely way possible. And so the whole book is spent just trying to get her to vacuum the carpet, and she interprets it in all sorts of different ways. And and I think of that here, disciples, how many different ways do we have to see, look who we have here? But of course we have to remember that the disciples did not have a category for God becoming man. God becoming man was not on their radar at all. And so they are slow to see it, even in example after example. And so when Jesus does what no man can do and reveals himself to them, and they realize this can't be a man alone, their first thought is, call the Ghostbusters. But Jesus immediately speaks. He reveals himself to them. And when he speaks to them, he says, no, You do not need to be afraid. Do not be afraid. Take heart. It is I. Now Jesus' words here sound comforting in English, but they are electric in the Greek. Because his words are, take heart, ego eimi. Ego eimi is the Greek for I am. And you remember that I am is the self-revelation of God when Moses asked God in Exodus 3.13, If the people ask me, what is the name of this God who spoke to you? What shall I say? And God says, you are to say, I am who I am. Ego eimi in the Greek translation has sent you. In John 8, 58, Jesus tells the Jews that he is ego eimi, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him for claiming to be God. And so Jesus is not just saying, be encouraged, I'm here, as if maybe an adult would say to some kids who need a taller, stronger person to rescue their cat, all right, I'm here, I'll help you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, as he comes to them walking on the water, intent on revealing his glory to them, he says, take heart, don't be afraid, I am is with you. Now the disciples had wondered who this 
man was. You remember when he calmed the storms, they said, who is this who can calm the wind and the waves? They'd asked the question, but they never gave an answer. They've watched the loaves. They've marveled at the loaves, but they hadn't understood them. They had missed that this was the Son of God, the Lord himself, who was their good shepherd, because their hearts were hardened. And so when Jesus reveals himself to them and comes to them on the waves, it says that they were astounded, utterly astounded. But at least at some level, this revelation of who Jesus was finally sinks in for at least some of the disciples. Because according to Matthew's gospel and his parallel account, as soon as Jesus got into the boat, the disciples fell down and worshipped him. It's the first time in the gospels that the disciples are said to worship Jesus. And the disciples say, truly, you are the son of God. That is who Jesus is. The Son of God, the I Am, come to be with them. Magnificent in glory, worthy to be worshipped. That is who Jesus is. But if that is who Jesus is, the second thing for us to notice this morning is that in Him, in His presence, we find the rest and help we so desperately need. That was certainly true of the disciples on the lake. Here they were, weary from a night of rowing in the face of the winds, confronted by a ghost-like figure and terrified. But for the third time in as many chapters, Jesus gives the same command to them. He says, do not be afraid. In chapter 4, he had urged the disciples not to be afraid in the face of the storm all around them. In chapter 5, he had told Jairus not to be afraid even the face of death, but to continue to believe that Jesus could be trusted for resurrection hope. Now here in chapter 6, Jesus tells the disciples not to be afraid of him, but rather to take heart and be encouraged. And why? It is I, Jesus says, I am, but you know me. I am the same one who saved you from death on the lake. I am the same one who has equipped you and sent you with words of life. I am the same one who has fed you in the crowds with food. And I am, I am the Lord who looks on his people with compassion, who is the good shepherd. Verse 48 says that Jesus is the one who looked out over the lake and saw the disciples straining painfully in the winds and came to them over the waters. Jesus says, look to me. In my presence, you can take heart and not fear. And if we step back for a second and think about these three commands that Jesus gives not to be afraid, not to fear, I think we have a wonderful theology to strengthen us against fear and worry and anxiety. In chapter 4, we find out that Jesus is able to help, that he has utter power and utter authority against everything in this world. He can stop the winds and the waves with a word. So we do not need to fear that anything is out of his control or beyond his ability to care for his people in this life. In chapter 5, we find out that Jesus is able to give hope even in the face of death. Death, of course, drives so much of our fear. We think we can get through hardships in this life, yes, but, but death? The finality of death? And so the threats and the dangers, and the diseases, and the possibility of loss makes us afraid. But Jesus offers hope even through and beyond death. 
Death faced through faith in him has lost its sting, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. We can grieve with hope because he has gone through death for us and has the power of resurrection in his hand. So he can control all things in this world, has authority even over death itself. But now in chapter 6, we find the heart of the one who has all power. See, a God who has all power will only be a comfort if he is also a God who sees our needs and desires to watch over us for our good. But that is the Jesus we find here in Mark 6. The Jesus who sees the disciples in their painful weariness on the lake and comes to them over the waters and says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The Jesus who says, I am, it is I am who is here and who is the great I am, but the one who has watched over his people from Egypt to Babylon and every step of the way, who has repeatedly demonstrated and declared his compassion and his steadfast love. And that is one whom we can trust. So stack these commands about Jesus' power and authority in this life and over death and his heart of compassion who sees his people and draws near to them. And we have a triply reinforced reason not to fear, but to believe. I wonder if you might take a minute this morning to just ask your heart, what is giving you the greatest anxiety or fear this morning? What do you fear when you think about your family, your job, your future, your life? And then remember who is with you. After all, magnify the person in the glory of Jesus and we magnify the peace that we can find in him. This is Jesus who has complete power and authority over all circumstances. Nothing is out of his control. This is Jesus who has gone through death itself for our sake so that death is no longer an end for anyone who hopes in him. This is Jesus who assures us of his heart, of his compassion, who draws near to his people, who is watching over them and reveals himself to them. And if this is the great I am who is with us, we can take heart. We do not need to be afraid. We can rest in him. But the disciples didn't just find relief from fear. Jesus was also summoning them to find their rest in him. Remember that after the preaching tour that Jesus had sent the disciples on, he said, come away with me and rest for a while. But how much rest have the disciples gotten since then? Well, not much because they've spent their time flustering and blustering and protesting about how to feed 5,000 people and then caught up in the excitement of making Jesus king and then straining painfully at the oars for seven to ten hours against the, the winds that were against them until just before dawn in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the water, showing them his glory and saying, take heart, I am with you. And if you notice carefully, all three gospels will emphasize the rest that came when Jesus got into the boat. Mark says that when Jesus got into the boat, the wind ceased and there was calm. What a picture of rest. Matthew says that when Jesus got in the boat, the wind ceased, the disciples dropped their oars and worshipped. 
They sit and worship. John says that when Jesus got in the boat, the disciples were glad. And immediately they were arriving where they were headed. That's kind of an odd phrase. They immediately got where they were headed. I don't, I don't think the boat sort of developed a 160 horsepower motor or, or hydroplaned across the water. I think the situation is that after struggling against the waves and the wind for hours on hours, the wind stops. Jesus is with them. They fall down in worship. And as dawn breaks, they look around and realize they have but a short, calm row to their mooring place. But the picture's the same in all three Gospels. In the presence of Jesus, the disciples go from worry, stress, fear, and struggle to worship, gladness, and calm. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture for us in our lives because we can go brashly pounding our way through life, wearily trying to be who we need to be and accomplish what we need to accomplish and do what we need to do. We can stuff this in our hearts and minds or we can try to be strong enough in ourselves for that. Or we can turn to Jesus, the Son of God, and worship Him in gladness and find rest in His presence. Maybe there's an area of your life right now that you are unwilling to submit to Jesus or to trust Jesus in, or you are struggling to trust him in. Maybe there's a way you're straining to figure out what to do, but without prayer or dependence upon him. And what we need is to set down our oars and to look to Jesus who comes to us through the winds and over the waves saying, take heart, I am is here. Rest in me. Of course, as it turns out, the disciples weren't the only ones to find the rest and help they needed in the presence of Jesus. In verses 53 to 56, when their boat landed at Gennesaret, people immediately recognized Jesus and began to flock to him with all those who were in need. And and do you notice the indefinite multitudes? Wherever he went, whoever was sick, brought to him wherever he was. This is a multitude of those who are sick and in need. But as Sinclair Ferguson put it, whether it's at night or under the blazing sun, Jesus graciously met the outpouring of need that met him wherever he went. And we've seen this for six chapters now, haven't we? Jesus healing whoever comes to him. But what's becoming increasingly clear to us as we work our way through Mark is how to understand Jesus' power to heal. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is none other than the Son of God, the Lord. And if he is the Lord, then he is the one whom Psalm 103.3 talks about. He forgives your iniquities. He heals your diseases. He satisfies you with good. He renews your youth like the eagles. This is the one whom Malachi prophesied, who would come with the rising of the Son of Righteousness, with healing in its wings. Now, of course, this is not to say all we need to do is look to Jesus with a quick prayer and he's going to zap all your sicknesses and sufferings away. Not in this life. Not in this life still broken by sin. Not in this life where Jesus still calls us to walk the road of suffering in union with him. But Jesus' healing is an outpouring of his grace. And Jesus' healing is a foretaste of the complete redemption that he will give on the last day to anyone who looks to him in faith. On that day that is to come, all who have looked to Jesus will find every disease and suffering wiped away. 
They will find all fear and sadness banished. They will find all sin forgiven and cleansed. They will find themselves completely restored as new creations in eternal glory that we might rest forever in the presence of our Savior. That is what we have to look forward to if we are in Christ. And as we wait that day, as we wait that day now, Jesus summons us to see him for who he is, the divine Son of God, the great I Am who is with us. And because of who he is, he summons us to come to him, to look to him in faith, and so find rest and strength and help in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this Son of God, your Son whom you sent. How we thank you for the way that he showed himself to his disciples. And through your word now he shows himself to us. Father, do not let any one of our hearts, I pray, walk away this morning without seeing your glory, without seeing you for who you are and coming to you entrusting ourselves to you and resting in you. And so, Father, as we realize how great you are, as we magnify your glory, may that also increase our zeal for you, our worship of you, and the rest that we find in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.